I mentioned last week that after studying Mark 15, uh, which is the, the section in the Gospel of Mark that describes the actual event of the death of Christ, that we would uh, decide to begin wading into the deep waters of the immensity of the grace of God as demonstrated in the cross of Christ. So that's, um, after studying that, I just thought we, we just got to keep on looking at this. It's too glorious to pass by. And so last week we um, began a four-week series that is going to be a little more topical, not as much as, you know, verse by verse, section by section, but looking at the cross, staring at the cross, if at any point in our lives as individuals we're, we're tempted to think of the cross as off to the side, I hope this series just pulls it back front and center. If the church at all is tempted to get all excited about other things, uh, which are good and even necessary, I hope that this series, again, plasters that cross front and center into our hearts and minds as a church. And so last week, in the beginning of our series, I wanted to begin by just painting the panorama of redemptive history and saying, listen, the, the, the cross is the center of it all. That prior to any creation, that the cross was in the mind and the heart of God. It, it was going to be His plan to glorify Himself and redeem a people for Himself. And then to look at the whole Old Testament was building the platform so we would understand the cross. And then you look at the New Testament. And what's the message that these apostles are proclaiming? It's the message of the cross. What's the mission of the church? It's to hold up the cross. What is the... Then we looked in Revelation. The, the praises of the redeemed for all eternity are built on the cross. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. It's, in other words, from eternity past to eternity future, we have... There at the front and on display is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my contention is, if it's the center of the redemptive plan, if it's the heart of God in eternity past, the center of worship in eternity future, then it should be of great importance to us today, right? The cross, our priority, first importance, front and center. It should be our glory and our joy. We should praise the Lord daily, regularly, hourly for what Jesus has done on that cross. So it makes sense when we think about all that God has revealed the cross to be in His Word, that the cross really is the central emblem of Christianity. Right? You think about different religions and the different emblems, the different symbols that they've used to kind of encapsulate their religion. You have the Muslims with their star and crescent. Or the Marxists who have a hammer and sickle representing the industry and agriculture of the belief system they propose. You have modern Jews who have the star of David, which is meant to symbolize God's covenant with King David. You have the Buddhists with their lotus flower growing up out of the marsh, symbolizing from suffering, growing harmony and peace and beauty. And we Christians, on the other hand, have a cross. We have a cross. You're familiar with that. There were three on the building as you, walk, as you drove up this street. You walked into the room, there's one right next to me. And yet I think the familiarity of the cross has caused us to forget something of the scandal that it was. I mean, think back of it uh, at this thing. Like, let's go back to the first century and think about the cross in those eyes. An instrument of torture. Uh, a way to 
put people to death through excruciatingly painful ways. It was a way to shame them. It was a way to put it in the heart, put fear in the hearts of anyone who would even think about going up against Rome. Our familiarity with the cross has caused us to forget how strange it is to make it a symbol for our beliefs. We are people who have made a torture device our main symbol. We put this torture device, we make little trinkets of them. Some of you have them around your neck, even this morning. Maybe they're earrings, little torture devices hanging from your ears. You put them on the back of your car. We have them on our church building. I have them on stage with me. Uh, instrument used to cruelly kill criminals, we plaster everywhere. I mean, just imagine for a moment a Roman citizen uh, from the first century gets time warped to Rancho Cucamonga today. I mean, there would be some really weird things that he would see around our city. He would probably be stunned by cars. Like, what are these, you know, chariots that are driving all by themselves? No horse required. He would look at our phones and think, what kind of dark magic is going on there? Uh, You know, what ghastly, you know, powers are at work here? Um, uh, But what I think he would also see as bizarre is that you would see crosses just about everywhere you turn. In fact, at work this week, I had Ella coming into work with me, one of my daughters, and I told her on one of the drives to church, I said, Ella, let's try to find every cross we can on the way to church. We're driving in, and there's a cross in this person's front yard, and there's a cross on this person's car. And we come up here, you're on the 210, and you're about to get off on Archibald, and over to your left, a massive cross over the freeway. You're driving up Archibald, and here's a church with a massive torture device on their front yard. It's just weird. I mean, the first century Roman would be, who are these people? What is it with them? I mean, think about it. If you were invited over to someone's house and you walk into their house and you see that around their neck is a miniature electric chair, that dangling from their earlobes are nooses, and on their wall they have a big picture of a lethal injection syringe, you would say, I don't think I'm staying for dinner. What is it about these people with torture devices all over? Instruments to inflict pain. Isn't it bizarre that we plaster churches, or sorry, crosses on these things? It is weird. We need to kind of get back and see the oddity of how central we make the cross. Christians didn't choose a crib for their symbol. They could have done that, a manger of some sort to symbolize the incarnation. They didn't choose a loaf of bread to symbolize Jesus' power to feed the hungry. They could have done that. Christians didn't choose the apron, you know, the apron that Jesus put on as he went down to wash the disciples' feet. We didn't choose the empty grave as the symbol of Christianity. The earliest Christians chose a cross, the most brutal method of shameful execution that had ever been devised, they chose that because they knew that the Scriptures in which they hoped, that the story of redemption that they had heard all their lives, and the Gospel message that they had come to believe, they knew that at the center of it was their Messiah on a cross. And that is what they made their symbol. 
The cross is at the center. And to the degree that the cross is removed from the center is the degree to which we are veering away from faithful, historic Christianity. There are a lot of good things churches can get excited about. But the main thing that fills us with worship and devotion and that drives us and defines us and brings us to know the kind of God that is the cross. It must always be front and center. We're going to look this morning not so much at the transaction that happened at the cross all those years ago. We talk a lot about the transaction. You guys know what I mean. When I say the transaction, I mean that uh, those who are trusting Jesus experience a glorious exchange. My sins go to the cross, are paid for, wrath of God, put on Jesus instead of me. He pays the crime. He pays the penalty. He is treated as the guilty one. I am set free. I am given His righteousness as a free gift, credited to my account, though I had never once lived a perfectly righteous day. That's the exchange. And my fear is that often we we love the exchange. We think about the past event of the cross, and yet we don't live in light of the cross. Our lives then veer off from the cross. We don't get under the shadow of the cross and walk each day in the reality of what the cross means. We, we develop different identities that are more fundamental to our self-understanding, be it a, position, a, a political position or a career that we've chosen or something that's happened to us. We slap that on ourselves. We make that our fundamental identity. And my contention, my desire, my hope and prayer this morning is that we would be defined fundamentally by that event that happened all those years ago would be the defining event of our lives. That we would live and define ourselves by that cross. That we would not merely think about and understand the transaction that took place, but we would also understand the fundamental transformation that we now experience in light of the cross. So this gets more practical. If last week you were a little bit more, this is abstract, this gets a little more, this is for us today, right now, to understand who we are, what in the world is going on. I have three points for us as we kind of tackle this topic. Uh, It'll be like this. One, we need to adopt a cross-shaped identity. And number two, we need to embrace cross-purchased freedom. And number three, we need to act with cross-inspired love. Do that, I want to turn in our Bibles to Romans 6. It'll be the main text that we unpack. Romans chapter 6 as we consider a cross-shaped identity. One of the most fascinating things that I encountered as I was just kind of freshly studying the cross this last several weeks was that the authors of the New Testament looked back at the cross, but they considered it more than merely an event of history. They saw the cross as something they were involved in. Not in a way that they felt the nails. Not in a way that they experienced the actual pain and the rejection. But still, they considered the cross to be the defining moment of their own lives. 
The cross became the way for them to understand themselves. It gave them a new identity, a new self-understanding. Who am I? The answer to that question became answered only in light of what happened at the cross. They didn't have a definition of themselves apart from the event of the cross. That was where they went to draw from, they they drew from the cross a new identity, a new self-understanding. Paul would say things like this, I have been crucified with Christ. He would look back at that cross, he would understand what happened there, and he would think, I was there. I was crucified there. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. Or he's teaching the Colossians, and he tells them, if with Christ you died, and then he'll go on to explain to them how they should then live. Almost giving it as if it's a known reality, that you, you died there too. It wasn't just that Jesus died, it was that you died. I was crucified there. You have died with him. And so if we were to go back and kind of do the double click thing on, on Mark 15, the, the actual historical event of the cross where he describes it, and we look in a little more deeply and we try to understand what the rest of the New Testament writers thought about that event, they did not merely see it as historical. They saw it as definitional to who they were. And this is my hope this morning. I want to convince you through Scripture to think in an entirely new way about yourself. I want you to consider yourself, Christian, as having been crucified with Christ. I want to make that reality a part of your everyday life. I hope that tomorrow morning you woke, would you wake up thinking, I have died with Him. And I have new life with Him. And Romans 6, 6 is one of the best places to explain this from, to show what the theology of the cross is and what it does for us. So you're there in Romans 6, right? Let me just do a quick overview of Romans 1-5. to Romans 1-3 to is... Paul basically explaining that all humanity is guilty before God, that no one is righteous, not even one, that everyone will stand before the judge of the world and no one has a righteousness that is acceptable to God. And then you get toward the end of chapter 3, but there's a righteousness of God that's given by faith. Chapter 4, the only way to be reconciled to God, the only way to be justified before God is faith alone. It's it's not by doing anything. It's not by works. It's those who stop working and they look to Christ alone. And then in Romans 5, we're told what Christ has done in His death for the ungodly. And then we're described in the the second portion of chapter 5, we're we're told about kind of two humanities, the humanity that's in Adam and therefore still enslaved to sin, and the new humanity that's in Christ and is sharing in His righteousness and is free from sin. And so he, he goes through all of this, the new humanity in Christ by faith, sharing in his righteousness. And in chapter 6, after kind of building up to the new standing we have before God is righteous and justified before him, he says, he asks a question. And there's a little bit of a turning point in Romans here. He asks a question. Paul, ever the lawyer defending his arguments here, imagines a person contending with what he's just said by asking a question. Verse 1, 
what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, the gospel is so amazing, grace is so powerful, righteousness is so free. Does that? Are you saying that I can go on sinning and every time I sin, God's grace just covers that sin, God's mercy overcomes that sin, and every time I sin, it magnifies the mercy of God so I can just keep sinning? Is that what you're saying? And he responds to that, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, by no means. In other words, unthinkable. No way. There's no way a true believer united to Christ and sharing in His righteousness can just go on sinning. It could just go on as if nothing's changed. The, the, the most incredible change has happened to a person that you can't just continue in the old life. You're different now. Let me read the rest of section that we'll be looking at from verse 3 now to verse 14. Follow along as I read. Here's why the person who is in Christ just can't go on sinning. Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. There is some powerful reconstruction going on here. The Romans had a misshaped identity. Paul is rebuilding their self-understanding in light of the cross. That's what he's doing. And what good Bible readers do when they read this text is they have to understand two important things. You have to be able to identify what are sometimes called indicatives and what are sometimes called imperatives. Indicatives and imperatives. What's an indicative? What's an imperative? Let me explain. An indicative is a statement about who you are or what you are. It is a settled historical fact. It's nothing about striving to become it. It's simply stating, indicating what or who you are. And then he also has 
imperatives. And you know what an imperative is? Imperative is a command. Now, all kinds of errors throughout the history of the church have arisen out of separating these things. To separate the who you are from the what you should do creates all kinds of problems. In other words, if all you do is think about the imperatives, this is what you must do, this is what you must do, this is what you must do, and you never talk about what Christ has done for you, you become a legalist. You become someone who's trying to do it all out of the power of their own flesh. And if all you do is talk about, this is what Christ has done, this is what Christ has done, this is the indicative of what Christ has done for you, and you never talk about what you're supposed to do, you become lawless. You don't obey the actual commands that Christ has given. And so in Scripture, you have both. You have indicatives. Here's who you are in light of what God has done in Christ. And here's how you ought to live in light of what you are. Never separate them. And next time you read your Bible, especially the epistles, note the difference between the indicatives and the imperatives. And what you will see is that all the commands that you are given in the Bible are rooted in something God has already done for you. That you are not operating in the flesh. You are operating because of what God has done in His grace and in His mercy. Okay, so I wonder if you've seen the indicatives and the imperatives in Romans 6. Let's go back and see. What does he say is true of every believer? What are the indicatives here? You can look at a few. Verse 2, he says that all believers died to sin. Verse 3, he says that all believers were baptized into his death. So in our physical baptism, when we were actually immersed in water, it was symbolizing a spiritual union, a spiritual union that we had with Christ in his death. Verse 4 says we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Verse 5, even more explicit, we have been united with him in a death like his. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ. Verse 11, finally, gets to an imperative. In other words, you notice, here's who you are. You're dead, you've been crucified, you've been baptized into his death, you are involved and united in his death, your old self is crucified with him, we've died with Christ, that's who you are, that's your identity. And finally, in verse 11, now what you have to do is believe that. Consider yourselves that. Consider that you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. And then in verse 12, therefore don't let your, your sin rule you. In other words, obey on the basis, follow this, obey on the basis of what Christ has already done for you. You're not earning anything. It's already done. In light of what He's done, Obey. Okay, what he's doing, it's a, an entirely new identity that's being constructed. A couple things just to notice about this. First, it's all past tense. Did you see that? It's all past tense. We died to sin. Already happened. We were baptized into his death. It's something that already happened. The old self was crucified. It's something that already happened. We have died, past tense. In other words, every believer in this room, this is true of you. This is not something you need to pray for. It's not something you need to try to work for. This is not something to attain to. This is objective. This is real. This is true of you. Every single believer, there's not uh, tears of 
or levels at which this is true. Every single believer has died with Christ. It's what happened when you received Him. You were united to Him and you were considered dead with Him. Crucified with Him. We've died with Him. It's a past tense. The weakest believer in this room is has been crucified with Christ. It's a past tense reality, not something for you to strive for. Your old self is dead. If you don't feel that way, you feel that the old self and the old sins are very much alive, your feelings are not telling you the truth. Because the objective reality, according to Scripture, is that we have been crucified. We have died with Him. We died with Christ. That is the biblical reality. And second thing to notice here, that there is now a command. The one command we get there in verse 11 is that you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So one of the things you ought to do regularly in your life is to remind yourself of who you are. I have been crucified with Christ. I was buried with Him. I died there too. You look back at the cross, you don't only see a transaction of sin and righteousness, glorious as that is, you also see a new identity springing forth. That I was there. United to Him. And what happened to Him on that cross, that crucifixion, happened spiritually to me as well. This is who I am. John Murray, the theologian, says that there is nothing more relevant to progressive sanctification. That is, you're becoming more and more holy like Jesus. There's nothing more relevant to your progressive sanctification than the reckoning of ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. I wonder how often you wake up with this reality ringing in your heart that I died with Christ. I was crucified there. And what happened to Him happened to me because I'm united to Him. We all know in real life situations how important it is to have some clarity on your identity. Some of you play sports. How well would that work out for you to be playing a football game and not know whose team you're on. Should I tackle the guy or block for him? You know, if I catch the ball, should I run this way or that way? Who, whose plays am I going to run? Who's my coach? Who do I listen to? You don't know your identity. You don't know how to live. And there are many Christians that really don't know their biblical identity. They're trying to live, making it up as they go, not understanding the reality that, no, you died to sin. Sin no longer has mastery over you. If I were to go up to each one of you and ask you a series of questions, if I said, who are you? You tell me your name, right? You say, I'm Eric Durso or whatever your name is. And then let's say I was just being weird and I keep asking you more questions. I say, okay, well, no, that's your name. Tell me who you are. So, well, um, you might start talking about your career. You know, well, I you know, do this for my job. I'm a pastor. I've been Grace Rancho. Um, but no, 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 that's the career that you have. I'm not interested in your, your name. I'm not interested in your career, the things you do. Who are you? 
Well, in other words, so often we don't even know who we are. What, what in the world are we? Do you know the biblical answer to a, for a Christian to that question? Fundamentally, the very core of who we are, if we've got to have a, a biblical understanding of our identity, deeper than our name and deeper than what we do, we must understand this. I'm a child of God. I've been united to Christ. I was crucified there at that cross. I was raised to new life with Him. That's who I am. I don't know how to define myself any, in any deeper way than that. That ought to be definitional for who we are. We, the church, are a crucified people. We are risen to new life with Christ in His resurrection. That's who we are. And too frequently Christians are slapping labels on themselves that are contrary to what God says they are. God says you died to sin. Who are you to say otherwise? Who are you to say that no, sin has mastery over me? No, you have been set free. Some of us are sulking around like we're still in those fetters. Like the ball and chain is still on our feet. We're being whipped and beaten down by the master of sin. And here God is saying that's not who you are. You were dead. You are dead. You are alive with me. You're a different person. Church. How often are you preaching this to yourself? Do you let other identities define you? Your failures define you. Your struggles are defining you. Past defining you. Your successes defining me. Or are you saying, I am defined by that cross? That's where I died. That's where new life was granted. Your identity is critical for your living. That's not it, because we need to move to number two now, which is also right there, and I've kind of been hinting at it already. Number two, the cross purchased freedom. We looked at the fact of our cross-shaped identity, and right along with that, that new identity, we have a cross-purchased freedom. Freedom from what? Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that... So that's the identity. Old self crucified. Identity is established. That's who we are. But it was done for a purpose. Our old self was crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. That body of sin, that body of... Uh, the, the sinful temptations of the flesh, the power that sin had in my life because I was crucified with Him, that body of sin is being brought to nothing. So that, look at this, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What has been purchased for us, church? The answer is freedom. Power. New freedom, new power, because of our new identity as united with Christ. If you want it crystal clear, verse 7 couldn't be more clear. You need to believe this about yourself, Christian. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Friends, one of the reasons I love the gospel 
is not only because it saves me from an eternal judgment someday. Gloriously true that I am saved from the eternal judgment of God because of Christ's death on the cross. It's beautiful. But what I also love is the freedom that I experience now, today, this moment, because of the cross. I'm free. Sin has no dominion over me anymore or over you, Christian, because of the cross. The one who has died has been set free from sin. There is glory in that, isn't there? Aren't you happy about that? Doesn't that make you glad we're free? That we don't have to live enslaved to sin anymore? We understand, in a sense, what Paul said in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. That's his identity. But then he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in us. The Son of God. And we, by faith, live in this new identity with new power. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Those of us who think that the cross was merely a transaction to get us off the hook of eternal punishment, but that the cross provides no help today, have got the Bible wrong. If you think there's a, such a thing as a Christianity that saves you, but doesn't transform you, it's not the Bible's version of Christianity. It's not true Christianity. Because true Christianity teaches us that we've been set free. How could we live any longer in sin when we have been purchased for God? As 1 Peter 1 says, ransomed by the blood of Christ. Ransomed, that's a freedom word, isn't it? Set free, bought out of the slave market of sin. New freedom, new power. I like how Augustine, the early church father, articulated the various states of humanity. He did it in four ways. He said that first, humanity was able to sin or able not to sin. Adam and Eve created in the Garden of Eden. They could sin. They did. We know the story. But they also didn't have a sin nature yet. They could have not sinned. That's the first state of humanity. But once they plunged humanity into sin, humanity entered kind of a second state, which is this. Not able to not sin. In other words, every human being after Adam and Eve, born in original sin and born with a sin nature, can't help but be enslaved to sin. Sinful mind is hostile to God. It cannot please God, Romans 8 says. So every human being after Adam and Eve are born into a condition, a state in which they are not able to not sin. The nature of fallen man, mastered by sin, enslaved to sin, dominated by sin. And for people to get brought out of that stage, they need Christ. And what Christ does when He saves us is He not only merely forgives our sins, but He transforms us, He sets us free, He ransoms us, and He puts us into a third category that Augustine articulated, which was this, that now those in Christ are able to not sin. You follow? So now we are brought from all I can do is sin because I'm enslaved to sin, I'm mastered by sin, 
But once I'm redeemed, I'm brought into a new standing with a new power and a new freedom where I actually can say no to sin. I can walk away from it. I can turn from it. I can actually walk in holiness. And he also articulated a fourth stage in which we are glorified with Christ and will be finally not even able to sin. That's not happening in this life. And so what happens in this life is this reality we live right now as a church, as a body of believers, we are able to say no to sin. Verse 6, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What this means, prior to Christ, you were enslaved to sin. Prior to Christ, you were dominated by sin. Prior to Christ, you were overrun by sin. You couldn't do anything about it. You couldn't get yourself out from under it. And what Christ did in His death on that cross is He set you free from sin's dominion. He removed its leadership and dominion over you and put you in a new state where now, by the power of the Spirit, you can resist sin. Let's use a little analogy here. Imagine you're on Team Sin. Everyone's born onto Team Sin, and Coach Sin is your coach. And what Coach Sin tells you to do, you do. Get on the line. Run more sprints. 20 push-ups. You don't disobey Coach Sin. You and your team are doing what sin tells you to do. You're very obedient. You're a team player when it comes to team sin. And everything that's required of you, you get busy doing. And what is being said here is that Jesus came and cut you from that team. You're off the team, buddy. You're on my team now. He set you free from all the authority that sin has on your life. Coach sin can't tell you what to do anymore. He says, you're on team righteousness now. You're going to follow what I say. And what begins to happen is you go, wow, this is amazing. I'm going to now be empowered to follow my, my new leader, Jesus. I'm going to follow righteousness. And yet, coach sin comes to practice every day. And he starts yelling at you on the sidelines. Say, hey, get back over on the line. Hey, drop and give me 20 push-ups. Hey, I'm your coach. You've got to listen to me. And we go, oh, oh, my, my coach is here. Um, Sorry, Jesus, I've got to go back. He, he, he's telling me I need to do this or that. And Paul's saying, you're cut. He ain't your coach anymore. You're not required to listen to him at all. He has no authority over you. You say no to him. Say no, coach sin. I'm on team Jesus now. I'm following righteousness. I've been empowered and employed by Jesus to do what he's called me to do. The old self is dead. The old master's fired. The old lifestyle cannot continue. Church, I wonder if you actually believe what I've just said. You can say no to sin. You don't have to sin anymore. You can say no to lust. Say, lust, that's not who I am. I've been set free from your dominion. You can say no to laziness. You can say no to anxiety. You can say no to gluttony. You can say no to pride. You can say no to anger. You can say no to jealousy and discontent and fear. 
you can say, actually, that's not who I am. I don't have to follow your temptation. I'm with Jesus now. I have the Spirit now. I'm united to the eternal Son of God and His resurrection power lives within me. I don't have to follow anything you're telling me to do, sin. I can resist temptations. But here's the thing. We don't feel that way most of our days, do we? I wonder how you're going to feel tomorrow morning. You get up after a long day, you're going to be tired, and your feelings are going to start telling you that you're still enslaved to sin. Coach sin is going to be whispering in your ear, all right, I've got a good practice for you today. I'm going to be telling you all the things you need to do, all the things you need to be. And they're lying to you. Your feelings are lying to you. You feel like you're walking in the sludge of sin. You don't feel dead to sin. Like what Lou Friolo said, do you know that you have the ability to talk to yourself at the rate of over a thousand words a minute? Think about that. He says, in ten seconds you can tell yourself a dozen lies. I think many of us are lying to ourselves about our sin. We give it way more power than it actually has. We wake up thinking we're enslaved to sin, we're bondage to sin. We're still standing in sin's prison cell, wishing we could have gotten out, wishing that the temptation... Uh, wasn't there, moaning and groaning about our sin, not realizing that the door has been swung open, the guards standing at the gate are mannequins, and there's nothing stopping us from getting out. We need to have and recover a bold confidence in the truth of Romans 6, that we have already died to sin, sin has no authority over us, we are united to Christ We need to stop listening to our feelings and replace those feelings with the truth and have feelings that correspond with the truth. In other words, the appropriate feeling that a Christian should feel in light of this is confidence and boldness and victory. That though I struggle with sin every day of my life, at the end of the day, Christ will ensure my victory. I have died. I have risen. I am in Christ. He will not fail me. You and I, Christians, should stand up every day, every morning, lift your chin high, say boldly to sin, you have no authority here. You are not welcome. And by God's grace, I'm going to crush you. And then proceed in happy obedience to humbly depend on the Lord every moment and every hour and walk in holiness. You see, guys, we're very... Quick to say, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. It's true. We will never be totally perfect in this life. But do you also have a category for saying, bound for victory, Lord, I know it. I know it, not because of me, but because of what your word says about me. True. Christian, are you more inclined to say, And I think we each will lean in one direction here. Are you more inclined to say to yourself or to others, I'll never overcome this? Or to say, since I'm in Christ, this will never overcome me? Many of us are prone to say and believe that our sins are in dominion. They are enslaving us. We believe they have mastery over us. And we are denying the work of Christ, aren't we? We're denying that we're ransomed. 
We're denying that we're set free. We're denying what verse 14 says. Sin will have no dominion over you. Could it be more clear? Since you're not under law, but under grace. We need church. We need to remind ourselves of this from time to time. And remind each other of this. Don't we? I mean, do we love one another enough to sometimes say with gentleness and wisdom, hey brother, you died to sin. You don't need to do that anymore. You're free. Sister, do you know that this sin will have no dominion over you? Look to Christ. Look to Him. Hey, I'll help you get through this. Here at Grace Rancho, we want our church for it to be normal here. That we are aggressively pursuing holiness because we believe our sins are actually overcomable. We don't want to give up and tap out. We don't want to tolerate respectable sins. Well, that's just impatience. It's not that big a deal. It's just discontent. No worries. No, we actually believe we don't have to be ruled by any sins. And that we in Christ can overcome them. Now, hear me. I'm not saying that total and complete holiness is possible in this life. But do believe that the Bible teaches that you can be holy. There's a weird cocktail of bad theology that has caused people to think that since they can't be perfect in this life, they can't live holy lives, and holiness is an impossibility, and so they wave the white flag and they make peace with sin. Well, we'll never be perfect in this life. Don't wave the white flag because sin is a defeated foe. March forward with confidence, believing Jesus, that already the work has been done. It has died. Your old self has died. Your old master is gone. You're not under his authority. You're with Christ. You're new, new power, new life. Now walk in holiness. In other words, if we're to sum up the Bible's teaching on this, is you are holy because I've made you holy, is what God says. That's the indicative. Now be holy as I am holy. He's purchased it. It's yours. Now walk in it. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it doesn't require a fight. I'm saying it's ours already. Past tense. You've died. You've been set free. You're crucified. You're raised. You have new life. All because of the cross. I wonder if you would be helped by doing it this week, maybe this afternoon. Moment of your temptation. Someone says something to you, tempted to strike back. You get news this afternoon about extra work you didn't realize you had to do at the job tomorrow. You're about to be frustrated. You're about to complain. Something inappropriate grabs your attention. You're tempted to indulge. I wonder if you could in that moment put that cross right in front of you and say, I died then. That's not who I am. I have new life in Christ. I can say no. I can be holy. I can take a step of obedience. Jesus, help me and walk in obedience. One of the interesting things I found as I was studying was Christians in the first and second century were trying to live faithful to the cross and what the cross implied for their lives. And they invented something that we still are aware of today called the sign of the cross. If you were Roman Catholic, you've, you've seen this thing. And what it became was something superstitious that 
was used to protect from danger, get the demons out of the room, things like that. Um, that happened over time, but the original design that the Christians were trying to capture in that motion was to remind themselves of who they were. I have, I died there. I've been crucified with Christ. I live every moment in light of the cross. And I'm not saying we adopt that practice. I'm saying we adopt the principle behind it. Every moment, every hour, how do we re- remember who we really are and live in light of the cross? Because if we get off track here, we will not be able to live the holy life that God has called us to live. Our last point is this. We need to act with cross-inspired love. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. The cross gives us a new identity. We've got to re- believe that about ourselves. And it gives us new power and new freedom. We've got to believe that about ourselves. So we've objectively died to sin. We have been given the power to over sin, overcome sin. But why should we? I mean, you can imagine someone being broken out of jail. You go to set them free. You open up the prison door and say, you're actually innocent. You're now free. You're allowed to leave. Come on, let's go. And imagine they say, well, I actually kind of like my cell. Um, I'm going to stay. In other words, what motive do we have for fleeing sin and its dominion and pursuing holiness? What, what reason? And I want to propose to you that there are actually many reasons in the Bible to pursue holiness, but one really important that's related to our series is one motive for holiness is the cross itself. And looking and understanding the cross gives us motive. It, it fuels love. It gives us desire. It warms the heart. It enables us to want to pursue the glory of Christ. So in 2 Corinthians 5, I want you to take a look at verse 14, where Paul is describing his ministry. He says in verse verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us. This could be taken in one of two ways. This could be Paul's love for Jesus is controlling him. Or it could be Jesus' love for Paul is compelling him to live for him. He's trying to say, look what Christ did, and now I want to live in obedience to him. Now I think it's that second one because of what he does next. Look at this. For the love of Christ, Christ's love for me, Christ's love for us, controls us or compels us. Why? Because we have concluded this, that one, that's Christ, has died for all, therefore all have died. He's talking about believers here. That Christ died for all of them, and therefore they all died in Him. Again, this is getting right back to the Romans 6 identity. We have all died in Christ. Can't be talking about the whole world, because not everyone has died with Christ. Not everyone is united to Christ. He's talking about believers. One has died for all believers, therefore all have died in Him. And verse 15, And He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. <laughs> what, what is He saying here? What He's saying is, we as apostles are so 
amazed by the love of Christ, that it compels us that when we think of Him dying for us and rising for us and living for us, all we want to do is then lay down our lives living and dying for Him. You see, the motive of Paul's ministry was fueled by what Jesus did for me on that cross. As if Paul would reflect on that cross, he'd stare at the nails, he'd stare at those thorns, he'd, he'd think about his dying Savior, he'd think about his dying King, and he'd reflect, it was me for whom he died. It was my sins that he paid for. It was my judgment that he took upon himself. And as he stared and reflected on the glories of that transaction, he said, how can I, if I am so loved by the Son of God, if I am so right at the heart of the affections of the Trinity, if that's where I am, if He loves me in that way, how can I not live for Him with my whole life? It compels me. It draws me and drives me forward. It produced faith. It produced love. It produced motivation. It produced a reason in Him to lay His life down in wholehearted service and devotion. I wonder if you're not a Christian this morning, you don't have any reason to live. You maybe feel like you don't even have a purpose for life. Or maybe the purpose for your life has shrunk all the way down to your own little wants and desires. I would just tell you that you were made to live for God's glory, to find your greatest joy and delight in knowing Him. But you in and of yourselves could never build your way up to God. But God has come to you in Christ is in a demonstration of His immense love and He died on the cross to purchase salvation for His people, to rise from the dead, to ransom them for Himself. That's a reason to live for. Turn to Christ. Get your sins forgiven. Be reconciled to God and walk in the freedom that He gives you from your sin. You might be enslaved to sin. Come to Christ. Be set free. It is, there is nothing like the cross to build love in the hearts of His people. We talked last week about that Muslim man, you remember? Always knowing God only as Allah, as distant. And then reading about the cross and His word was, this is irresistible. I was reading about Jerry Bridges this week. In his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, he tells the story of how as a young man, he was involved in a Bible study. He'd go out to every Monday, and on Monday night, he'd be driving back a long drive by himself, and he would say that the enemy would begin to attack him, and he'd begin be feeling these, discouraged, these discouragements would just come flooding over him like waves. And he would have these thoughts, why am I struggling this way? There's no way I could be a true Christian if I'm struggling like this. And you know what he did? He describes in his book this. He says, I began to fight the enemy by resorting to an old gospel hymn, which begins, Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. How did he get out of the discouragement? You fixate on the cross, on the blood, on the love of Christ that he's already shown us. We remember that we aren't here trying to earn love. 
trying to coerce it out of them. Coaxing love from God. We remember the cross. And he writes, as he concludes the little illustration, he says, I would sing that hymn, and by the time I finished, I would be praising God for His salvation given to me freely through Jesus Christ. It's the blood that produced the praise. It's the cross that produces devotion. It's the cross that produces confidence. It's the cross that produces love. Stare and reflect at the cross of Christ and watch what it does for you. Think of another thing I was reading this week. A woman named Clara sent with a team to bring the gospel to Asia. While she was there, she was kidnapped by Islamic fundamentalists and never seen again. A leader of the team that she went with had to write a letter back to the church and explain what happened. And in one of the last paragraphs, this is what he said. He said, where, people ask, did she get the motivation to serve in a place where she knew this might happen? Her answer was simple. Where would I be had Jesus not come for me? In other words, she looked at the cross and knew He came for me. He came for me. He loved me in that way. And it spurred her to love the lost. The cross inspires action. So not only does it give us a new identity, not only does it give us new power, it then fuels us to say, if I have been so loved, how can I love others like Christ has loved me? Let's live, church, with the cross the center of every thought, of every day of our lives, remembering what He's done for us and who we are in light of it. Lord, help us to live in light of the cross, to live in light of the glories of the cross, the new humanity that You've created because of the cross and to know who we are, the new power we have because of our union with You and Your death and in Your resurrection. And Lord, I do pray that Your cross would spur on faith and love and devotion and service and sacrifice O oh Lord, make us people of the cross. Make our lives shaped by the cross. Make us worshipers in the cross, rejoicing in the cross. Lord, let us not be defined by anything else but the cross so that You receive the glory You deserve. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.